So we're going to be looking at um, Mark chapter 10 this morning. So if you want to uh, turn in your Bible there, you'll be ready when we read that passage in just a few minutes. Actually, we'll read a little bit of Mark 9 and a little bit of Mark 10. So you can turn there um, so you're ready to go when we get there. It's on page 845. In the Pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the Pew Rack in front of you, and you can use that. Um, But I want us to think about the issue of worldview Um, before we head into this passage. Everybody's got a worldview. Everyone has a narrative that they believe about the most fundamental realities, like the bottom line, kind of bedrock questions of life and existence, you could summarize them really with four questions. Certainly we could ask other ones, but these are pretty fundamental. How did we get here? What went wrong? How does what is wrong get set right? And where are we headed? So, How do we get here? Why is there something and not nothing? What went wrong? I mean, I don't think any of us would deny the fact that as we look around, man, we just say it is not the way it's supposed to be. How did the world get the way it is? And how's it going to get set right? And where are we headed? Is there any hope? Is there any resolution or restoration to this mess? So underneath all of those fundamental questions, (laughs) so maybe those aren't bedrock, but underneath them is an even more fundamental question. What or who is behind all of this? Is there an ultimate reality behind all of this? So there's lots of worldviews out there. One option is the atheist worldview. Okay, so Bertrand Russell was a famous British philosopher, mathematician, Nobel laureate, and he was an atheist, okay? So here's one summary of his worldview from his own pen. He wrote this, that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins." Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. He didn't even put safely built in quotes. I don't know. Such in outline, but even more purposeless, more void of meaning, is the world which science presents for our belief. So that's one option. It's one worldview. So if we were to ask Bertrand Russell to answer those four fundamental questions, you know, why is there something and not nothing? Why, did we, why are we here? How did we get here? Well, random chance. Accidental collocations 
of Adam's. What went wrong? Well, has anything really gone wrong? Because there's no personal purpose behind all of this. It just is. So we simply need to just evolve and become more humane, maybe. So how do things get set right? By reason and cooperation is probably how he would answer. In fact, he argued for a scientific society elsewhere where war would be abolished, population growth would be limited, and prosperity would be shared. He suggested that the establishment of a single supreme world government able to enforce peace claiming that the only thing that will redeem mankind is cooperation. Does that sound like a pipe dream to you? <laughs> oh, yeah, let's give all the power to one. I'm sure they would enforce peace. And then where are we headed? Is there any hope? Well, we're destined, in his words, to extinction in the vast death of the solar system buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. So that's one worldview option. There's lots of worldview options that kind of fall under the category of religion where God, some divine power, some higher power is behind everything. That's how we got here. The mess we're in is because we broke the rules. How does it get set right? Well, we need to keep the rules. We need to be good. And then how does, you know, where are we headed? Well, if we've kept the rules sufficiently, if we've been loving enough or improved ourselves sufficiently, then we'll be accepted. It's another option. A lot of people think that's Christianity. Well, our passage in Mark 10 in particular provides a really great summary of the Christian worldview. Okay, so in the Christian worldview, why is there something? Because there's a good God who created everything, good, 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 very good, including human beings, made in his image to reflect his character for relationship with himself, this loving relationship, and for us to exercise humble, humble dominion, stewardship over the creation that he's made for us. But the evil one slithers into the garden how did everything go wrong? Tempts Adam and Eve, our first parents, to doubt God's goodness. Tempted them to be gods. You could be like God. And with that cosmic rebellion, the world became red in tooth and claw. Survival of the fittest, dog eat dog. Redemption, that's Advent, it's Christmas. God sent his son to redeem this broken world that's enslaved to sin, dark and a mess, to set us free, to set his people free so that we can love him and love each other, serve him and serve others like the renewal has already begun because of Jesus. And one day he's going to make all things new. So where's this all headed? One day every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And everyone who's trusted Christ is going to know fullness of joy forever in a renewed heaven and earth. New bodies, new everything. And those who have rejected him will be rejected fully and finally forever. So underneath all those fundamental questions is the ultimate question. Who's behind all of this? And the Christian worldview says 
that behind the curtain is actually the greatest servant in the universe. That's what this passage is all about. I wonder if you, like if, if you were asked, what is God like, if that would come to mind, that God is a servant, that he's humble. It's actually why we celebrate Advent. It's why the Son of God came to earth, because God is humble. I don't know if that strikes your ears as strange, but it's true. God did not simply become humble at the incarnation. His humility led to the incarnation. It's part of his inherent, is his inherent greatness. So he didn't become humble at the incarnation. The incarnation revealed and displayed God's humility. So think about how we use the word incarnation in our world. We don't use it very often if you're, you know, it's the culture around us. But we do sometimes use it in the sense that, you know, if I speak of basketball greatness, it's kind of abstract, right? I mean, we can talk about points scored and rebounds and triple-doubles and all of this. But if I say Michael Jordan was or LeBron, LeBron James is the incarnation of basketball greatness, that's more concrete. If you've seen them play, you've seen basketball greatness. It makes this abstract thing more visible, more concrete, right? So I don't know what your sport is. Maybe you don't have one, so I'm sorry. Hang in there. Um, Swimming greatness. I don't know how to define that, but I can watch Michael Phelps and go, that's swimming greatness. Or soccer greatness, you know, Pele or Mia Hamm. Tennis greatness, Serena Williams or Roger Federer. Unfortunately, we can also speak of evil this way. So evil is kind of an abstract concept, but if I say Ted Bundy or Hermit Gosnell or Hitler... They are like evil personified, evil incarnate. Right? Well, God is humble. He's the greatest servant in the universe. And the Son of God is humility and servanthood incarnate. So let's look at our passage here. Beginning in Mark 9. Verse 33, we'll just look at a couple verses here, and then we'll flip to chapter 10. So 933 is on page 845 in the Pew Bible, like I said. We'll read this passage, then we'll pray, and we'll dive in, okay? Mark 9, 30 to 30, 33 to 35. Okay, so Jesus is teaching his disciples at this point. He's predicted his suffering and death in verse 31. And they didn't understand what he was talking about. They were afraid to ask him. And so, verse 33, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So he just said, I'm going to suffer and die. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. Kind of a sad Two things in contrast. Sad irony. Verse 35, And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now flip ahead to chapter 10, verse 32. 
So big number 10, little number 32. Once again, Jesus with his disciples, they're on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid because he'd been persecuted, under threat. The Pharisees want to kill him. So it's kind of like walking into the lion's mouth. That's why they're afraid. Like, hey, what are you doing? You're going to get yourself killed. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. That's just non-Jews, everybody else. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Like he's about to go undergo baptism by fire. This is an image of suffering. And they said, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Not because they're like, come on, you're not supposed to ask for the, for the best places. They're just upset because they didn't call shotgun first. They, they want the same thing. Okay, For all of them, their values are out of whack. So Jesus called to, them, called to him and said to them, <clears throat> you know that those who, considered, who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, you who follow me. If you're going to be my disciple, it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Sunday before Christmas Day. We thank you for this season of Advent and the opportunity, the reminder to pay special attention, to give extra focus to the mystery and the miracle of the Incarnation. Father, we thank you that you haven't dealt with us according to what we deserve. Thank you that you are merciful and gracious. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And you made that visible when you sent your son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for willingly humbling yourself, even to the point of 
death, death on a cross, so that we could be rescued and saved from our sin. So we thank you for this season. We pray that you would help us to fix our eyes, eyes of faith on the good news of the coming of Christ and be thrilled by what we see. I pray that you would open our eyes now as we look at your word. Help us by your spirit to see your glory in the life of Jesus Christ, in the humility of Jesus, in his servant-heartedness. As he makes visible your invisible glory, and I pray that we would trust you, that we would turn away from any trust in ourselves, but we would trust wholly in you and follow Jesus on that path of humble, servant-hearted love, giving ourselves for the good of others. So I pray that we would not just be informed today as we look at these words on the page, but cause them to sink down deep into our hearts and transform us and make us more like Jesus. In his name, amen. All right, so there's a little outline in the bulletin, if that's helpful. Um, the points will be up on the slides as well. But we're going to actually start at the end. So we're really going to look at chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. But we're going to start at verse 45 and work up from there, okay? So first point is, why did the Son come to earth? What's the purpose of Advent? What's the purpose of the coming of the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us? Why did he come? into this world. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the outline's like, duh, Captain Obvious, right? Three reasons, they're right there in the passage. Not to be served. Why did he come? Not to be served, to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. So we're going to look at them one at a time, okay? First, not to be served. That's actually pretty shocking. This is the greatest man who ever lived. This is the Son of God. This is God taking on flesh and blood. This is a divine invasion into space and time and matter. The one who made everything coming into it. It's like the author, someone said it, like the author entering into the page. It's mind-blowing greatness. I love how Augustine put it, the early church father. Man's maker was made man that he, ruler of stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread, the bread of life, might hunger, the fountain, thirst, the light, sleep, the way, be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be bit beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. This is crazy stuff. Familiarity can breed indifference. This is crazy stuff. This is a wild mystery. So we would expect 
this king, this God in the flesh to be born in a palace, right? To be born into wealth and privilege and power. We would expect him to rule with might, you know, conquering and establishing the greatness of his throne, of his rule. We would expect him to be waited on hand and foot, served in that way. Every subject offering unhesitating obedience. That's what he deserves, right? Suffer the consequences if you don't. But he did not come to be served, which is actually made all the more shocking because of the title that's used here. Did you see it? For even the Son of Man. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the phrase can just emphasize the mortality of a person, okay? So Psalm 146, 3 says, Put not your trust in princes, in the government, in a son of man in whom there's no salvation. In other words, don't just trust in mere mortals, right? But there's a really important usage of this phrase in Daniel 7. Why don't you take a look at it? So flip back to the book of Daniel. It's on page um, 745 in the Pew Bible if you're using that. So Daniel is this prophet, and he sees this vision in chapter 7. Look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Okay, so looks like he's human. And he came to the Ancient of Days. It's God was presented before him, and to him, this man, this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Wait a second, this is a man. An everlasting, how do you, how's that possible? Which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So there's this expectation, it's mysterious and blurry, but there's this expectation that there's going to be a king that comes, and that king is going to be served by all people, people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, forever. And since Jesus is that forever king, you you can see why the language of the Son of Man came not to be served is kind of shocking, right? So it's not that Jesus is failing to fulfill this prophecy of the coming king. It's not that he's contradicting this prophecy. The issue is when and how will he fulfill this prophecy? How will his kingdom come? How will it happen that people from every tribe and nation and language will bow to serve King Jesus? Well, here's the point. It's not going to come by force. It will come by faith. It's not going to be imposed from without. It's going to well up from within. What do I mean by that? Well, here's one way to get at it. Do you know that there's two kinds of service in this world? There's service that aims at giving and service that aims at receiving. Okay, so many of you in the days to come will serve other people this Christmas. People that are cooking will serve hungry family members and guests. So that service is a service that's aimed at giving, meeting a need, filling a belly. But there's another kind of service in this world, 
okay, that aims at receiving. Did you know this? You remember how Jesus said one time, you can't serve God and money? How do people serve money? Are they trying to give money something? Meet a need in money? No. Money promises something. Right? It promises to give security, prestige, comfort, satisfaction, etc. Right? And if you believe that promise, you will serve that master. So, if sex is someone's master, do they serve out of duty to give to their master? No. Sex promises things, satisfaction, etc. And so they wholeheartedly serve. So serving God is similar. It's not about meeting a need in God. He doesn't need anything. He's God. He doesn't need us. He's not lonely. He didn't create us like, oh, I'm just so bored here in this vast cosmos, you know. I've made enough stars. Let's just do something else. No, he's not lonely. He's not looking for help. The gospel is not a help-wanted sign. Heard somebody say that once. Listen to Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So listen, God could be a sovereign tyrant. He could just tell us what to do and threaten to crush us if we don't measure up. He could. If he wasn't also a father. Yeah, he's sovereign, but he's also a father. He could do that if All he was after was compliance, but he wants glad-hearted, inside-out service. He wants us to believe that his reward, his grace, his gain, relationship with him is the best thing going. So we believe money has a lot to offer. We serve money. That doesn't really satisfy, but God does. You see, if you believe that, you'll actually serve him. Not in order to give to him as if he needs anything, but to receive from him. Right? So, he wants glad-hearted inside-out worship. He wants relationship and love and fellowship. And so, the Father sent his Son, gave his Son. The Son willingly comes to earth. But he came not to be served. He didn't need anything But we sure needed a whole lot. We're the ones in desperate need. We're bent and broken, selfish and prideful. We need atonement for our sin. We need rescue from our slavery. Secondly, so he came not to be served. Secondly, he came to serve. So make sure you connect these dots while we consider this one, okay? So Jesus came to reveal When we see why Jesus came, we are getting a glimpse into the character of God because Jesus reveals the character of God. Jesus is God with us, the invisible made visible. 
mean, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus said, actually, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So as we consider that the Son of Man came to serve, it wasn't just like a temporary job. Okay? This is a revelation of God's eternal character. The ultimate reality behind the universe is the greatest servant in the universe. So just consider what we see when we see Jesus. Just think a little bit about how he came to serve. So he didn't come on the take. He wasn't obsessed with approval ratings. You know, he, he didn't need to do whatever it took to get reelected. He didn't levy taxes on mankind. He actually paid his taxes, right? And he helped Peter, you know, that miraculous, you know, coin in the mouth thing. You guys tracking? You know what I'm saying? Everybody awake? Okay. So his whole life on earth was one of service. Matthew 20, there was those two blind men, you know, they hear that he's passing by and they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us. And he stops and he says, what did he say? What do you want me to do for you? <laughs> and they said, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And in pity, he touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Look at him serving. This is God. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. What a great servant. So he freely taught. He's teaching the truth, exposing lies, deception of false teachers, doing it all freely. He freely healed. This isn't Benny Hinn, you know? Freely healed, restoring sight, the ability to walk, healing leprosy, healing from fever, raising people from the dead. He fed hungry people. He didn't charge for it, right? He didn't charge anyone for the bread that was multiplied and the fish that was multiplied by the Sea of Galilee. He cast out demons, freeing people from demonic oppression. He rescued scared fishermen, you know, from wild storms. He attended a wedding. And when the wine ran out, he turned somewhere between 120 and 150 gallons of water into really good wine. That's the character of God. He even stooped to take the lowest servant's role by washing his disciples' feet. His whole life was one of service. It's beautiful, this life, because God's beautiful, because God's the greatest servant in the universe. He came to serve. So he came not to be served, but to serve, and the ultimate act of service came when he gave his life. So third and final reason for the advent of Christ, the first advent, the coming of Christ, is to give his life as a ransom for many. Look at verse 45 again. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's so much in this one phrase here. We'll just unpack it a little bit. First off, can you hear the connotations of him being a, a substitute for us, a sacrificial substitute. So the Son of Man came to give his life for many. His life in place of theirs. His life given as a ransom for theirs. Paying the debt that they owe. So that word ransom, you know, refers to paying the cost to free a slave or a prisoner. So our sin creates debt. Someone's got to pay. 
I mean, I, we all know the weight of a guilty conscience, right? The debt building. So how does that get dealt with? How does that get paid for? How does that get washed away, cleansed? How does that happen? I mean, our sin can be like a big, huge bag of stones that we carry around, like a backpack. So some people try to deal with their guilt by doing good things, trying to make up for it, trying to pay off the debt, try to do penance, wash away the guilt. That's self-atonement. It never works. You never know if you've done enough because you can't do enough. And we're always adding to the debt, aren't we? Has any of us loved God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, loved our neighbors as ourselves, like for, I don't know, 30 minutes, let alone a full day? So all of our sin also is not just against other finite human beings. It's against an infinite God. So our debt is not just finite. It's infinite. Wages of sin is death, eternal death. So we need a Savior to rescue us from our slavery to sin, to pay this infinite debt. We need real atonement, not self-atonement. We can't do it. We can't accomplish it. No other mere human can accomplish it. Only God can do it. So thank God that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. So he paid the ransom. On the cross, he said, it is finished, paid in full. For all who trust in Jesus as their Savior, all their sins, all your sins, all my sins, past, present, future, completely paid for. Anybody excited about that? Anybody thankful for that? It's really good news. So full atonement, redemption, freedom from the slavery to sin and death, which is why early on, earlier on in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus spoke of why he came, and he said it this way. So the Pharisees were upset that he's eating with sinners. You know? Oh, what's he eating with those people for? And when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I came not to call the righteous, at least those who think they're righteous, but sinners. So... <clears throat> All this obviously happened 2,000 years ago in history, right? But when you hear that good news and it sinks in and you believe it, everything changes from the inside out, right? Your allegiance changes from the inside out. It's not imposed forcefully from the outside like some tyrant and his subject doing his bidding. Yes, master, you know, like it's internal. It wells up from inside. And you're no longer living for yourself. You're set free from that slavery. You're not your own master anymore, thank Jesus. You start following him. You've got a new master, but it's not an, he's not an oppressive ruler. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, Jesus said. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. That's the kind of master he is. <laughs> Isn't that good news? So, so the real focus is all on verse 45, because the real focus for all of us needs to be on Jesus. So this is just kind of like the minor point. 
Point number two, how should we respond? The real money is with Jesus. So we've spent the most time on him, but now we're going to look at response, okay? Because we can't just leave it out there, like leave it on the carpet as we go. How do we respond to this? Well, first off, receive his service. So you remember I mentioned Jesus washing the disciples' feet. It's a pretty well-known story, John 13, right? So he, ta- he is the Lord and he's the master. He's the teacher. He's the one. And he lays aside his garments, puts on the towel, and he is washing the disciples' feet. It makes them really uncomfortable because only the lowest servant would do that. And he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now. But afterward, after the cross and resurrection, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon was like, okay, Lord, wash my, you know, wash everything. Like, I'll take a bath. Gotta love Peter. That's, those are serious words. If I do not wash you, if I don't serve you, you have no share with me. Because if you don't think you need my service, the ultimate service right here, if you don't think you need a cross, you have no part with me. You think I died in vain. You think you're good on your own merits. You see? So you have to receive the service of Jesus if his service is going to apply to you. If you're going to be set free, you've got to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus and receive. So we drop all of our so-called merit. Well, well, look, I, I did this. I helped the lady across the street. You know, just drop that. Your hands are just full of a bunch of sin, just like mine. And we come empty-handed and we receive grace and mercy and forgiveness and atonement Right? So we need to first receive his service. There's no self-salvation, no self-justification projects, trying to measure up, make up, self-atone, be acceptable on your own performance. It's so exhausting, isn't it? It'll never work anyway. We can't save ourselves. But listen, so, so if you're not a Christian, you can drop all this sin, give it to Jesus. He died for it on the cross, and you can receive his grace today. But even if you are a Christian, it's so easy for us to start that way and then try to kind of keep going in our own steam. This is not just a once and done service. This is a daily posture of reception. We're needy every day, all day. And Jesus wants to serve and strengthen and help you and me for everything that he puts in our path as we follow him. So listen, isn't this a good deal? He serves us so that we can serve others in the grace and strength that he supplies, which is actually how we serve him. Because he doesn't need anything, but other people do. So he enables, he empowers us to serve because he first served us. We can serve others because he first served us. So similar pattern in 1 John with love. 1 John 3, 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So 
we love, we can love because He first loved us. We can serve because He first served us. Okay, so when the Clydesdale, you guys all know a big horse, big, huge horse, Clydesdale of Jesus' love and His service on the cross pulls the cart of our love and service, then we can serve the Lord with gladness. Then we can serve in the strength that God supplies. So again, serving God is actually receiving from God, being served by God, so that in the strength and grace that He supplies, we can serve others who do need our service. So you're going to go into this Christmas season, and you, know, you might have some family that may be hard to love, and I, we all have people that we might want to avoid rather than love or serve. Jesus doesn't want you to try to do that in your own strength, on your own steam. We all know what happens when we do that. We run out of steam really quick. We start getting irritable and angry and impatient, and we bite and devour. Or, you know what we do? We just withdraw. We disengage. We protect our time and our comfort and our safety. And when we do that, we start to be on the take selfish we start to end up using people for our own selfish purposes. We start to want to be served rather than to serve because we're empty. We're not receiving the service of Jesus. And we don't have anything to give anybody else, so we start saving our lives. We start to want to be served rather than to serve. And life will end up being about my needs, my comfort, my plans, my success, my safety, my security, my freedom. And if we do have any power any position of power, we will lord it over others for our own selfish ends, which is why Jesus said what he said to his disciples in verses 42 to 44. So we'll look at this briefly here. Look at verse 42. Jesus called them, and called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So Jesus is redefining greatness according to reality, right? The reality behind the universe is the greatest servant in the universe. So if you want to know greatness, you've got to know God. And if you want to know God, look at Jesus. God is great. And what's God like? A servant. A servant. So listen, servanthood is not a tool to use. It's not like a card to play to obtain greatness, and then presumably you kind of just leave servanthood behind once you've obtained your goal. Servanthood is greatness. So the world and its fallenness is filled with, you know, survival of the fittest dynamics in the animal kingdom, but also in the corporate world and in our neighborhoods and everything, dog eat dog, lord it over, bullying, throw your weight around to get your way. It's all a perversion of God's original good design. It's an attack on the good as God originally designed it. It's anti-God. That's an anti-God narrative. Servanthood is true greatness. God himself is the reason for that. And then he made it visible when he sent his son to show us greatness. So servanthood by God, listen, 
The servanthood of God is not a temporary choice at the incarnation, and then that's it. He never has lorded it over us, and he never will, not even in eternity. In fact, this is crazy. Speaking of the second advent, you know, when Jesus comes again, Luke 12, 37, Jesus said this, Blessed are those servants whom the master himself finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, will serve us forever. That's like too good to be true, isn't it? I mean, that's crazy. But this is God's character. So it doesn't mean he's a genie in the bottle. He's the king of kings. But the king of kings is not aloof and a tyrant. He is the greatest servant in the universe. He's come to serve us, to give his life as a ransom, to free us, and we can now freely follow him. So let's go forth into Christmas and the new year not to be served. We follow Jesus, right? Not to be served, but to serve and to give our lives as a blessing for many. That's what Christmas is all about. So we're going to close now by singing Joy to the World, which this passage should lead to Joy, right? Joy to the world. The Lord is come. The Lord who is the greatest servant in the universe. Let earth receive her king. We should receive him, receive his service so that we can serve others and reflect his humble, gracious, loving, sacrificial character. Let every heart prepare him room. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. Aren't you glad that the ultimate king behind all of this universe is a humble king who serves. Don't you want his kingdom to come? Well, us following Jesus is part of how that happens. So let men their songs employ. Let's employ this song to praise our great servant Jesus and ask for his grace to live following him, uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give our lives as a blessing for many. Let's pray. God, we praise you. You are so much greater than we imagine on our own. You are the high and holy one who inhabits eternity, but you also dwell with the lowly and contrite of heart to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Thank you that you came low to serve us and to lift us out of the pit of our own making. And you set us free so that we can follow you on this path of humble, joyful service. There are so many people around us that need your grace and truth. So strengthen us. Help us to follow you in the strength that you supply so that many others would be blessed like we have been blessed by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.